I was suspended in a fantasy land where I believed that all this shit of like being an anarchist counterculture, fuck the law, let's just make money and live and we'd splurge at strip clubs on the weekend. There was no meaning to anything. Everything was just momentary. And when you have to have conversations after multiple burials and you're having the same conversations with family members and it grounds you very quickly and, uh, yeah, you begin to see the value in taking a walk without watching your back. And um, a lot of kids believe in this honour among thieves, but when you get knee-deep in it, you realise that it's all bullshit. Dudes are waiting to stab you in the back. Your best friend's stolen money from you, but you act dumb because he's your best friend. The other mate's sleeping with your missus. It's all a fucking facade. That's journalist and podcaster Mahmoud Fazal. And this is episode 279 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and thank you so much for being here. This is my show. My guest today is the journalist uh, and host of the brilliant podcast, Violent Times, Mahmoud Fazal. He writes for Vice. He's a fascinating guy. More about Mahmoud in a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. Sometimes I'm counting roses on TV or at the moment we're in, we're in paradise. I'm counting roses on TV. Um, I write a book. I wrote a book that's just this week been shortlisted for the ABIA Awards. I don't know. Does that mean I need to write a speech and borrow a suit from work and practice my I didn't win face? I don't know. Um, What else do you need to know about me? I only eat plants. I'm vaccinated as fuck. I ride a bike, uh, both of the pedal variety and the motor variety. And I lift kettlebells. And right now I'm doing this podcast. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, thank you. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. What is this show? Well, this show is simply a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you'll hear in the next hour or so is guaranteed to make you go, oh, right. Oh, that's what that was about. And maybe do something new or try something different. Mm, that's what it's all about. Um, right off the top here, I'm just thinking about, I want to let you know, because you know, you've been with me for a long time. I'm thinking about changing this up a bit here at the show and putting out a second show during the week. It looks like that second show is going to be on Fridays. And as yet, I think it's just going to be a bit more of an extended reflection of what's going on um, for the week. Um, you know, but having said that, you know, listening to me rabbit on isn't all that exciting. So I'd love to hear from you too. I'm thinking of adding a bit of a and a portion into the uh, that part of the show so um you can always email me your questions i'm fascinated to you know always talk to people i love emailing people uh, but I'd, I'd really love to hear your voice so you can either email me a question send us your email at gmail.com or i'd love to hear your voice now i'm trying to figure out the easiest way to do this for everybody because certain apps work on different platforms whatever but it looks like instagram might be the easiest way to get this to me um if you send me an instagram voice note um that way i can hear your voice and then you know, we can get you on the show and I'll ask you a question. So the way you do it is you go into Instagram, you get into the DMs there. There's a little microphone. You just touch and hold the microphone. Just tell me who you are, where you're from and ask away. Tell me what's up, whatever's on your mind. 
um, yeah, ask me a question about relationships, about food, about work, something you've heard on the show, whatever, whatever it is. I'm here to help. Um, just, just let me know. I'm looking forward to um, to hearing from you. I just do want to big say thank you uh, to everybody that listens to the show. Uh, for the fantastic reviews you've been leaving in iTunes. That means a lot. It means a lot the way that they work out who's in the top 10 that week. Um, it, it goes on downloads, but also goes it goes on reviews. So if you've been enjoying the show, if the show has proven some value to you, it would mean the world to me if you could just uh, leave a bit of review about what you thought about the show this week. Um, just up there on iTunes, um, a big thanks to Roxy who left a review saying, listening to these podcasts is a way to learn about incredible, inspiring Australian stories, struggles and strengths. Keeps me hopeful for my own recovery. Roxy, rip it to hear from you. Um, five stars here from Ash, the best podcast. Insightful, motivating, entertaining, useful, inspiring, educational, therapeutic, fun and funny. Great man and an amazing podcast. Whether you're touched by mental health issues or not, you'll get something out of this show. Take everything you thought you knew about Andrew G and set it on fire. I <laughs> love it. Um, so I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode today with Mahmood. Uh, if you write what you thought about this episode there in those reviews, maybe that's a way um, to kind of help keep the dialogue going between us, but also pump those reviews up because, um, to be honest, the, the, the higher we are in the, the charts, the more high profile guests because that's what they check for they go where are you in the charts when i'm trying to get the bigger guests so uh, the, the more more people listen the higher we are in the charts the better guests i can get you the better shows you get to listen to so um it's you doing your part to help make the show that you enjoy even better so that would be a massive 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 help for me so subscribe there in itunes or wherever your you know your podcast app is subscribe away and leave us a rating and a review in itunes that's a really really big help to me so just let me know what you thought about this particular episode in itunes and uh, i'll read some about next week that, that's super good um a big thanks to everyone that got in touch through the week always great to see where you listen to the show because i like to uh, i know you're listening to this probably on a mobile device so someone did send me a great picture of them listening on a desktop while i did uni work which is pretty cool um i know most of the people listen on a, on a mobile device so uh just take a photo with the phone that's on that mobile unless you're rocking a nokia uh, take a photo with that phone on the mobile and um shoot it over to me either on instagram or um send us your email at gmail.com people have been listening to the show all over the world from chile train platforms in glasgow to the, the beautiful shorefront shorefront in geelong to the study halls at university working on some sort of fascinating 3d modeling going on there um to R rachel shaking her jelly bean jar going on the bay run that's a uh, tani schultz call back there shaking the jelly bean jar going for a run around the bay beautiful pictures as the dawn broke um one person listening out for a 20k run last weekend she was all over it uh listening to me and todd Lubinskis as as she ran oh my god and jared singh jared singh sent a photo of him uh waiting for the sun to the for the other oh, for the lights to go on in this little tiny little swiss village underneath the matterhorn just uh, incredible picture that jared sent but you know jared's an incredible photographer so he's you know <laughs> he's pretty good i'd love to know where you're listening send osher email at gmail.com ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, my guest today is Mahmoud Fazal. Mahmoud is a journalist for Vice, and he hosts the very compelling podcast, Violent Times, a show that explores the role of violence in our modern society. From speaking to graffiti artists who were involved in brutal street violence in Melbourne in the 80s and 90s, to connecting with Australia's deadliest soldier, to spending an afternoon with the Yakuza in Japan, Mahmoud gets face-to-face with the people who have not only committed violence on others, but have been victims of violence themselves. Now, Mahmoud's story is a heavy one. The son of Afghani immigrants, Mahmoud was just a kid at school with a different name and probably a strange lunch. But then 9-11 happened. And then things changed for the young man. I'll let Mahmoud tell it. However, his own path into violence, living with the consequences of violence, and indeed his redemption from violence, is a riveting and compelling story. Now, just off the top here, this is a conversation about violence. We needed to describe violent acts in order to put things into context. Some of the descriptions that Mahmoud goes into are quite graphic. Now, if this sort of thing isn't for you, all good. I'll see you next episode. With that being said, I hope you get a lot out of this conversation with Mahmoud Fazal. I've got shit hearing, uh, but I don't wear my hearing aids when I'm doing this because uh, you're right in front of me and I can I can get you pretty mm. guy. But um, I can't turn my headphones up loud enough to hear how you correctly pronounce your first name. Mahmoud. Mahmoud. So yeah. there's no hut in there. No, I mean, technically there probably is, but uh-huh. uh, for the sake of the way the world is, we'll just go the way I was brought up. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And where, where were you brought up? Uh, in Dandenong, yeah. That's a part Southeast, of Victoria, isn't it? Southeast of Victoria. Yeah? Mm. Is it how far out of Melbourne? Um, maybe 35, 45 minutes out of the city. Right, right. Yeah. And um, how long was it until, I mean, did you grow up? With other blokes called Mahmud, or were you the only Mahmud? No, in my area, um, at that time, actually, Dandenong was pr- pretty multicultural, but um, it wasn't, there wasn't a huge Muslim population. Um, there was a big Albanian population in South Dandenong, but there wasn't a big Middle Eastern population. That all happened once um, a lot of Afghan refugees came following the war. The Soviet. No, the Soviet invasion was when my parents came and there wasn't many Afghans that yeah. actually made it all the way out down under. Yeah. 
post that war, there was only a few communities. I mean, everybody knew each other. It was probably 150, 200 Afghans right. families or some. But um, now the whole area, there's a street called Little Afghanistan. And yeah, so... Um, <laughs> it's fantastic. Dandenong's, yeah, an Afghan town now, there's, there are so many, but that's, yeah, post the Taliban regime in the 90s and then we had the US invasion of Afghanistan, which was quite brutal as well. So, yeah. Yeah, they call it the graveyard of empires. They haven't seen a moment's <laughs> peace. Yeah. It really, it really is. You don't have to go back. I mean, you can go back as far as you want and there's just endless tales of battles, yeah. people picking fights there and losing hundreds of years. Yeah, losing because of the terrain or maybe because we're so stubborn. I don't know. <laughs> What do you what do your folks tell you about? Because it's got to be. I always think about it. How we all love where we live. And it's just the nature of us as humans. We become mm. entrenched into this. Ah, oh, this is my space. This is my room. These are my things. This is my street. There's the person I see every day. Here's the place I go to go get food. Here's my school. Here's my community. Here's my work. I like not having that change every day. How bad's it got to get before you go? I've got to, I've got to leave. As much as I love this place, I've got to go because if I don't go, I'm going to die. How I always wonder about, you know, when that point is. And do your parents ever talk about that? They really never do. No? to be honest. Um, fleetingly, they might mention bombs. You know, my grandfather was uh, kidnapped by the Soviets as a prisoner of war. Um, but even then, the details are maybe tucked away subconsciously, mm. you know. Um, they're just happy to have distanced themselves. And, yeah, I mean, the, the villagers were getting bombed. They'd go to school, and if they didn't leave early, the school would get bombed. Yeah, it was just living in an atmosphere of constant paranoia is enough to throw anyone out. Yeah. Did they, did they have kids when they left or...? No. They were just married? No, my, they weren't even married. Uh, no, my dad moved here first. Huh? My mum fled to Pakistan, and um, so she went to school in Pakistan. And my parents had an arranged marriage, so my grandparents negotiated with my mother's grandparents, and then she came to Australia. Right, they're still together. Yeah, yeah. Happy yeah. days. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's culturally foreign for, you know, many people, but then many people listening go, oh, yeah, that happens. Oh, um, yeah, it happens all over the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, it was happening in Victorian England not, not too long ago. <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely, you're 100% right. But, Father, I don't want to. Doesn't matter. Yeah, we need that family. land. Yeah, it's yeah. happening. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But people are just shocked by it now because it gets highlighted yeah. and um, sucked into this media, mm -hmm. you know, bullshit about, who Muslims are. Right. You know. Your mum, how old was she when she came out? She was 18. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She had me like a year later. Yeah. What? When, when were you born? 1990. Right, right. Well, mate, I, look, I remember I tell this story. I've told it before. I remember my mum was older when she had us um, for the time. I think she had her mm. first kid at 32, which was probably 16 years later than everybody else at that period in history. I remember waiting at the car park you know, one day to get picked up and I saw my friend's mum show up and she was smoking hot. She was smoking hot because she was 25 because she had him when she was 17. 
I'm, I'm like, I'm like my mum's forty. You know, I was like, all oh, right. <laughs> you know, it was just the thing. It's just what yeah, happened. Yeah. You know, it's just a, just kind of what happened. I often find it interesting that in this country, in particular, it's always peaks around election time. There's always talk about immigration and refugees and da 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 da. But you know, you can't go past the fact that this country's just got such a long history of extraordinary growth and benefit from immigration, and has shown incredible compassion to people from all over the world. Mm. Time and time and time again. And and for me, like, if you look at the majority of our, you know, history of the last 30, 40 years, you know, that that's the message. It's only recently in the last 10 years or so that it's become so demonised and so politicised. Mm. It's so demonised and politicised because you've got to think of the various factors that have led to who is migrating, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Uh, whether we should be sympathetic to those who are migrating or, or whether we are fearful of those who are migrating. And post 9-11, it's very hard for mainstream voters or whatever to find sympathy for Muslims because they're demonised. Mm. Um, and, I mean, you don't have to look far to see that. But Was yeah. it a pious household you grew up in? Was it prayers on Friday? No, not really. Yeah, my dad's very religious. Um, my mum's religious too, but I was born and raised in the suburbs. My dad loved Australia. He, he you know, barracked for the Australian cricket team and it, it was ingrained into me to love Australia. And so throughout my whole childhood, I wanted nothing more to be Australian. You know, my cousins were listening to Tupac and rap music. I was like, listening to Powderfinger CDs, you know, and I trying to do my best to fit in. Um, and by and large, throughout my primary school education, I did fit in. I was widely accepted. I mean, they were just, that was the odd joke about where I was from in the sense that it was a bit of a tongue twister to pronounce, you know, Afghanistan. But nobody knew what Afghanistan was or where it was on the map. It was just this weird exotic gypsy land from somewhere in that, you know, Oriental, Middle East. But then in, the, in my final year of high school, at September, towards the very end when we were all celebrating and getting ready to go to high school, 9-11 uh, yes, happened. You were in grade six? Yeah. Hardcore, 11 years old, pivotal time in your life, yeah. your identity. Yeah, and then so I went to high school just off the back of 9-11 and oh, it yeah. was, uh, yeah, it, it, suddenly we were everywhere. Afghanistan was everywhere and there were men in turbans and Bin Laden was all over the news. And even I was like, because I'd watched the media so much and consumed it so much because it was just, I don't know if you, you probably remember, it was just on repeat on every channel. Loop tapes. Just, yeah, yeah. Loop just tapes. That image of him in the beard in the caves with guns. And the training I, camp, dudes running yeah, with AKs yeah. jumping over things. because I didn't know who the fuck these guys were. Yeah. I didn't know what Afghanistan was. It was... You know, I was a backyard cricket man. I was like, I wasn't into what was going on in the mountains of Afghanistan. I didn't even know. My, I knew the language. Um, I knew the music. Um, you know, I knew the food. But I didn't know politically uh, what had been happening. I just knew that my parents escaped it. And then suddenly in high school we were branded with it. And... Um, we had no choice but to embrace it. And um, 
become this thing that we had no idea of. So, you know, there was a band of Muslims in my high school who joined together and for a lot of, a lot of years we copped it sweet, you know. There was a lot of like, um, you know, like dirty terrorist kind of slang on the cricket pitch or on the, when you're playing footy, but we, took, we just thought, thought everyone was having a laugh, you know, or like bomb jokes and shit like that. But then um, one day we just snapped. Yeah, and we um, we became very violent. And, um, yeah, we felt like we were backed into a corner and the only way we could... Um, we could revolt against being called terrorists was with our fists. I mean, it's a naive way to do it, but when you're young, you're a teenager and you're, you know, want to rebel against things, uh, that's the way we did it. We were naive. But, uh, yeah, we, we, we didn't want anyone to fuck with us and then... So, it is what it is. In your... We'll get to what happened later in your life later on and, and, and most definitely the great work you're doing with the, the podcast, which I fucking love, by the mm. way. It's extraordinary. Thank you. In the research you've done around the patterns of how these violent lives, violent lives, because it's, it's not a singular event. No, nothing happens in a vacuum, you know. There may be a stabbing, there may be a shooting, there may be something, but there might have been 15 years that led to that violence, yeah. that violent moment. Do you feel what happened to you as a young man developing a sense of identity, someone who loved Australia, someone that was, you know, you can't get more Australian music than Powderfinger in the, in the 299, 2000, right? Being you have no tendencies whatsoever at the time besides, you know, just general boy growing up rough and tumble, no tendencies to violence, but someone labels you this enough times backs you in a corner, isolates you. The only way you feel power is that you then associate with other people who are being labelled this thing and then one, and rather than f constantly use all your energy to say, I'm not that thing, I'm not that thing, become that thing. Mm, yeah, in a, in a strange way, I guess that's what happened. But I think the, the crescendo of all that was this idea. We convinced ourselves that it achieved the result, that violence made people stop. It made people, you know, take a backward step. And we nobody called, called us names. But in a way, it, it backfired because suddenly everybody on the schoolyard was too afraid to call us names. So we didn't know who our enemies were all of a sudden. And so we just assumed everybody was against us. And then you just create an environment of pure rejection and you become the absolute outcast. And so galvanised amongst the people that you are aligned with, no one else can get in. No way. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, funnily enough, uh, we had um, we had one Vietnamese guy. We even had one one Australian guy that was rolling with us. I don't know why the fuck he was rolling with us. He was just he was just he was just bad man. He was just a bad bad cunt back in the day. And um, yeah, we we happened to align with people who just thrived off violence and that image of violence. And there were Aussie guys who had been down and out, uh, come from commission flats who aligned themselves with us because they felt ostracised as well in, and they didn't feel like they fit in the um, Haviana-wearing board short lifestyle. They wanted to be wearing shocks and TNs because 
they had the same experience as us. So, yeah, it was actually, there. it wasn't all Middle Easterners and, and Afghans. I mean, there's, and amongst those circles, there's always, there's always uh, like a saying like, um, the white guy in the Arab crew is the one you should be scared of. You know, because they had to earn their earn their place in in the crew. But you know, what I get from you describing what just happened then is, yeah, you're discussing you know, people looking for alignment, people looking for safety. But w- would you say that they're they're looking for a, a, a connection because everyone else doesn't want to have anything to do with? Yeah, them? man, they just want to belong. They don't want to belong to anything. They're desperate for belonging because they've never been picked on the team. That's all it is. Hmm. Yeah, and we offered them that place. And suddenly they, they, you know, prosper in this community. Some of those guys revert and become Muslims. You've probably noticed the trend of, you know, Anglo guys turning to Islam and it's a lot of those guys that are marginalised and they find something that they're missing in their lives in a community that accepts them. Mm. There's something, you know, and I think about, you know, my, um, one of my Indonesian mates when he talks about, and he's prop, he's a great bloke, and when he talks about, you know, what his devotion brings him, when he talks about, he goes, no, man. Five times a day, I get to check myself. Five times a day, I get to be humble. Five times a day, I, have, I stop and I go, I'm not the biggest person in the world. And my week revolves around my community and food and seeing each other. And, you know, my year revolves around festivals and, and, com- and connection and community. I'm like, fuck, who wouldn't want that? Who, who wouldn't want that? Well, I did some work with um, prisoners in the uh, state of Queensland and they had a quote-unquote problem of... Anglo-Australians reverting or converting to Islam. Um, And I I interviewed a lot of those guys and they just observed the way Muslims operated on the prison yard uh, compared to everyone else, every other race, because everyone's aligned by race in prison. And again, it was this thing of pure community, brotherhood, acceptance, sharing everything, everywhere you went, you pray together five times a day. And a lot, a lot of the times those guys that converted actually put their life back on the straight and narrow. It, it, re, it recalibrated them through this abstract, bizarre thing we call faith. I don't think there's anything bizarre about it or, you know, it's a, it's a discipline, it's a practice of humility. I think for me that's the most, you know, the thing that I see is, if you've lived your life in a ultimately selfish way, not caring about another person's feelings or another person's property or whatever, and then you are into this space of humility, you have to see yourself as actually, no, I'm just a, I'm of service. That could do extraordinary things to how you carry yourself exactly. through the day. And that your behaviour reflects on others is, a, is another, you know, others that you're aligned with will get, uh, you know, praised or blamed for what you you know, your actions are because you're so visibly that. I totally understand it. Like, I used to be really weird about religion. <laughs> I used to be so weird. I possibly due to my, my own schooling. Um, and 
you know, now I just I just try and see as hard as I can. So I just I try to be quick to see where religious people are right. I try to be quick to see where okay, that part is not for me. But I get I get that I get the discipline. I get the humility. Mm. I get the community. I get it. I get it. I so understand it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of noticed from the guys that I interviewed, the ex-prisoners, they had a problem with authority. But suddenly when authority is invisible and it was on their own terms, it made sense for them. Yeah. When you're in this situation, and I'm guessing you, the first time you walk home in a pair of Nike shocks and your folks don't know where you got the money for them, you know, <laughs> what, what, what kind of conversations are happening at home? No, at that, at that time... Um, I actually, I, I, I really got into art at a young age and um, I got, my dad moved me out of the school I was in to get me out of that environment because I, I got in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And I went to a school where uh, I became obsessed with art um, and I found a, a, a redirection and um, I moved away from that community and um, I was taken in by an art community and um, I found a way to channel that aggression and I found people that I thought were naturally my enemies or that that I thought were judging me in a veiled way, be really accepting and um, critical of the way society operates and and so uh, I studied and I did well and I went to art school and um, but then um, the nature of art is it doesn't pay very well. And so um, years passed and I couldn't find work and I slipped back into uh, the people and the communities that I'd left behind because I wanted to survive. And um, I was quite self-destructive because I, I was blaming society for something like not being able to get work and taking it out on myself. So I started abusing drugs quite hard and um, I was smoking ice. Um, And uh, I started dealing and getting into a a life of mischief and running amok in the outer suburbs. And... um, yeah, my parents started to ask questions and I was making money and I just lied. I, I literally, at one point, I told them I had a job. I would disappear all day from nine to five and come back. And But um, they knew something was up, but then it started getting worse and worse. And yeah, reached um, an apex where I was um, very paranoid, been up for a lot of days. And... Uh, I took a meat cleaver out and started patrolling my street because I thought people were trying to trying to break in and get my parents. And, uh, yeah, I, w- I went to a house where some young guys lived and it was... Uh, I was in all sorts, man. It was, a, it was a real unhinged moment in my life and my mother was crying and my father was crying because they didn't know what was wrong with me, but I didn't even know what the fuck was wrong with me. I believed it. Mate, um, it's, and I thought I was protecting them. It's real. It's so real. I think a lot of people don't realise that. It's when you're around, I've, I've been there, man. I've, I've had paranoid delusions. 
it's, it's as real as you sitting in front of me. And someone could come in here and say, no, 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 that you're just imagining that. I'm like, you don't know. You're lucky I know. I started thinking my own mates were in on it and that's when it really starts to spiral out of control because then you're just on a warpath. Yeah, and you're ready to ready to do whatever. But I'm, I made, a, probably because of the drugs, I made a bit of a reputation for myself for being quite resigned to violence. My threshold for violence was like a fuse. I, w- I was... I was pretty, I wouldn't, it wouldn't phase me. I wouldn't think about any repercussions or anything like that. And that was a lot of because of the amphetamines. It, it has a way of, um, yeah, reducing any moral compass, dissolving it, and you become pure impulse. And that's, that's the way I was for a lot of years. And then... I climbed what you might call some kind of hierarchy and uh, I met some people and then, yeah, I, I joined an outlaw motorcycle club. Right. So through this kind of behaviour, people, you, you became effective at what you were doing. That's how I put it. <laughs> you became, you became yeah. quite effective at <laughs> what you were doing. Yeah, I mean... I don't know if I was effective at what I was doing, but I was um, I was good at being short-sighted and I prospered in a short-sighted way very quickly. Um, but yeah. I, don't know, I don't know anything about outlaw motorcycle gangs. All right, when I was, I don't know, when I was 15, we had some bikers move in next door. So I learned a bit about culture and they were, they were older. He was probably my age now, he was 45. She was 37 and they had a kid together and occasionally some blokes would come around, you know, just for a drink and a sit around, but they were all kind of more mellowed blokes in their kind of later 30s and some bloke had half a nose and one was missing an eye and this is in the mid-80s, right? Um, but that's about all I, you know, they, they had rad parties and I didn't know that Jim Beam came in a green bottle until I met those guys and I would, you know, I would sneak out and, they would teach me how to roll weed and stuff like that. It's like fairly benign. Oh. Yeah, there was good neighbours to have when you're 15, you know. Um, but that's about the extent. That's about the extent of it. I don't, you know, I, I don't know anything. I mean, sure, there's plenty of shows made on television about this kind of stuff, but I can't imagine it's. It's just all dramatisation. I can't imagine it's got anything to do with reality. Yeah, well, when I was introduced into the old, the old guard of. Um, Outlaw Motorcycle Club, I started hanging around the Finks in Melbourne, um, the old Finks. Quite a famous um, thing. I I remember their logo. I remember their logo, yeah. Very cartoonish. Yeah, they had a logo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And even to hang around that, the Finks Motorcycle Club back then, you couldn't touch meth. It was a a bare-knuckle ban. If, If you got caught taking meth, bringing a glass pipe into the clubhouse or any, anything like that, there would be very, very severe consequences. And all you got to do is type things into Google and you'll see what's happened to some blokes that have come to party on a Friday night and left dragging the remnants of any bones left in their bodies. It, this was a place where you did not fuck around. Um, it's a self-governed society within a society. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was like... At the time, um, outlaws 
were like the poster child of being a reject of society. Um, there was all that shit on the news about Nike bikies and stuff. And so naturally we aligned ourselves to them. And in the um, early, around early 2010, that era of bikey culture in um, Victoria, a lot of Middle Easterners started joining and the culture shifted from being... Well, it actually shifted in New South Wales in the late 90s with um, guys like Sam Ibrahim joining the Nomads. And that's when Muslims and Middle Easterners were introduced into this scene that naturally felt aligned with otherness. And so it's... As, I don't want to say it. it is a parallel, but I can see the similarities between what happened when you were younger and... As you know, as an older man, it's just the scale and the consequences are significantly different. <laughs> yeah, they were. But um, what's what's? I mean, I'm I'm I don't you know. This is a. I'm just interested to hear your your journey and 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 the work you're doing. But I can only imagine that when you get into that kind of situation, and I'm sure there's initiations and you see things and you hear things and you do things to remain within this situation. It, uh, it all becomes fairly like if, say, for example, the the 20th thing you got asked to do was the first thing you got asked to do, it probably would never have happened. But I'm imagining that, that it's like, a, oh, can you do this for us? And then number two thing is, can you do that for us? And then it just no, kind of, it's no, like that at all. it's like, let's go. No, it's no one, no one really asks you to do anything. No, no, you could you could join an outlaw motorcycle club, Osher. Buy yourself a Harley Davidson. You can ride around with outlaws, and you'll never, you could never commit a crime in your life. And you could be in that club for 10, 15 years. Uh, that whole—I mean, I'm talking only about my club at that time. Uh, this whole idea of being told to run guns up from one end of the country to the other, or you know, have a transnational ice syndicate. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's a seductive and romantic thing to watch on television, but um, the reality is that those kinds of importations and large-scale operations don't have a face like outlaw bikers. They would be quite stupid to wear patches on their backs and import kilos and tonnes of heroin and ice into this country. It's just, yeah... Of course, not everyone in a club is clean skin, but no one tells you to do anything. Right. Um, but at the same time, one of the sayings is no one tells you to do something that they haven't already done or aren't willing to do. But if you man up and say, no, I'm actually not down with that and I don't want to be involved with, in that, that's halfway to being a one percenter is being a man and stepping up and saying, no, nah, I don't want to fucking do that. I'm an accountant by day. You know what I mean? But you have these impressionable young guys who think they're impressing someone when they, you know, get caught with ounces of drugs or run through people's houses or buy a firearm and let it go outside someone's house. They think they're impressing someone when really... That's just 
Yeah, it just brings heat on the club and usually those guys get dealt with very quickly mm. and oh. they don't last. When you mention one percenter, can you explain what that means? Well, that's just what an Outlaw Motorcycle Club member is. Um, I, I, don't, I, mean, I think the origins of the term are debated, but something to do with the American Motorcycle, I think American Motorcycle Association where there was some big party and... Um, they got labelled one percenters after a motorcycle race. Only the papers read something like this is in the sixties, I think. The papers in America printed something like it's not all out, it's not all motorcycle riders that are like this. This is just the one percent, and so outlaw clubs took on that one percenter identity to say we are those one percent <laughs> very very different to the financial elite one percent that we talk yeah, about yeah, that yeah. we talk about now no very different <laughs> i'm sure they would like to be like them but uh oh, i don't know look there's then that's you know it, it's it was in the grandmaster flash song who's the bigger criminal Who's the bigger criminal? Someone who rips off a pension fund of $200 million and then uh, yeah. like a 1,000 people have to live in caravans because their yeah. retirement has just vanished into a shady real estate deal? We were definitely less prosperous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the times, man, we were making ends meet, you know, especially there was one point when we got, our club got declared a criminal organisation um, and blokes put their houses up uh, to fight it in the in the high court and um, to appeal the decisions that were being laid by the Abbott government, specifically the Vlad laws in Queensland, where you couldn't associate with another member. And a lot of these guys, they don't know anyone outside the club. They've been in the club 10, 15 years. So suddenly they were told, you can't be seen in public with more than two of these guys. If you do... You'll be put in jail. And when I say put in jail, not you go to court and then the judge decides. No, it's like a fine. You go from where you were to prison. There's no lawyers, none of that. So it was a crazy, yeah. There was there was no gold chains and diamond rings back then. It was like <laughs> yeah, people selling their bikes to survive and to sustain a subculture that's been around for years. Yeah. But like everything, it fades. Where did that lead you? Where did it end up for you? Um, I, I left the club because um, uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of violence on the periphery of my life, um, uh, a lot of gang violence. And um, I lost a lot of friends in the space of a couple of years, some to street violence, others to other forms of violence and... Um, I, I really derailed mentally and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I suffered. It only takes a couple of your mates to bury him and then, it, you know, suddenly you don't know what li your perspective on life is uh, radically, radically different. Yeah, and I... Uh, yeah, I, I struggled to find purpose, yeah, and meaning in things. Everything just felt plastic and shallow. The whole, the whole point of it all seemed like it, it wasn't worth anything anymore. Mm. 
What changed? Well, my um, my whole worldview was shattered. I was, you know, sitting in the kitchen explaining to my mate's mum why he's got bullets lodged in his head. And I was a sergeant at the motorcycle club at the time. So whether I had anything to do with it or not, it doesn't matter to, the, to some, certain people. You're guilty because of the way the culture is um, portrayed. And so um, suddenly I realised that directly or indirectly anything that glorifies that lifestyle needs to stop because um, I was suspended in a fantasy land where I believed uh, that all this shit of, like, being an anarchist counterculture, fuck the law, let's just make money and live and we'd splurge at strip clubs on the weekend. Didn't, we didn't have any life. There was no meaning to anything. Everything was just momentary. And when you have to have conversations after multiple burials and you're having the same conversations with family members and you, it grounds you very quickly and, uh, yeah, you begin to see, um, see the value in taking a walk without watching your back, in going to the beach, looking at the water, going to the cinemas, um, you know, you appreciate that, fuck, your parents have actually sacrificed something for you and that sounds cliche, but actually it's kind of true. Like, yeah, every your whole, your, your, some people need that to purge themselves, need, need horror to um, wash them out of something, out of this fantasy land. And um, a lot of kids in areas like the ones I grew up with still in Australia, believe in this honour among thieves, uh, believe in the, the glory of crime and that um, caricature. But when you get knee-deep in it, you realise that it's all bullshit. Dudes are waiting to stab you in the back. Your best friend stole money from you, but you act dumb because he's your best friend. The other mate's sleeping with your missus. There's no honour among thieves. A guy, you know, you'll have mates who get arrested and then in the interview, the interview tape's turned off. So what the fuck does that mean? They're probably talking about you. And then they're acting like you're the one that lagged on them. It's, it's really a dog-eat-dog world. But, you know, you hear the rap music and you see these dudes with gold chains on telly and you see blokes who, who cop 10-year wax and they act, act like it's all, it's all gravy but they're the first ones to fucking cry when their parents visit them in a 4x4, four four, you know what I mean? It's all a fucking facade, it, yeah. And once you take that mask off, yeah, it, you, see, you see the world in a very different way. You almost become fucking conservative. Do you know what I mean? You begin to value the order of things. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The, the normalcy. Just yeah, the normalcy I mean, all you've got to do is speak to a bloke that's done 15 years jail and they'll all tell you the same story. Man, I wish I just got a job. Man, I wish I just married that girl that was good to me. I mean, you've, you've grown up, I grew up on gangster films, but I didn't pay attention to what they were trying to tell me. The bloke dies or goes to jail at the end. I was lucky to survive, but I lost a lot of mates on the way and I've got scars and wounds that won't be healed. Yeah, it's not worth it. No money's worth it, you know. Rolex is just weight on your fucking wrist. <laughs> <laughs> so you're... Was it you're thirty? Twenty-eight. You're twenty-eight. You're twenty-eight. What you just said to me ten years ago? Could you have heard it? I would have heard it, and I would have told you, "Fuck, here we go, another fucking sermon." You know, it's just another sermon from a has been, and that's what I am now. I'm a has been to young guys. You know, I'll go. I'll hold my own. You know, people still respect me, but the reality is I'm a fucking old, I'm a has-been in that world. And it's just another has-been talking shit and, you know, preaching to the young guys who are seduced and have been fucking drowned in this media frenzy about, you know, how to gain riches, get rich or die trying or fucking whatever, but no one wants... You know, some of these guys, the, the circumstances surrounding their lives have derailed them in the sense that they can't, they, they didn't have the opportunity to, to go on the straight and narrow and to, to go to a good university. They didn't have that education. So, yeah, they, they want to be that guy on telly. They want to be the man in the suit. And the only way they think they can do it is to do it quick, to do it fast, because patience is a fucking very difficult virtue to make sense of. Do you ever have an opportunity to speak to younger guys at the moment? Only through my work, yeah. and that, and that's why I like that's the way I kind of like it because um, it it's a take it or leave it situation because advice you can either click my article or you you can move on. It's the internet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not preaching to anyone, but if you want if you want a different perspective of life on the underside, as told by those who have really lived it. That's what sometimes gets to the to the young guys. It shakes up their souls because it's someone who they admire and respect telling them to pull their fucking pants up. 
because trust me, a lot of those young guys, when they go to jail, they think, you know, they think it's going to earn them stripes. That's until you get pulled into the shower and something nasty happens to you. There's no honour. This is everything you believe. It's something else. You, they don't know. They haven't. But again, what I'm saying to you has been said a million times. It's like a broken record. You can go to America and there's a million dudes trying to tell people, like, you have to change something. But no one listens because they think it's the only way. Isn't it interesting that we as humans, the parallels are it can be the guy who's told by his doctor for 10 years, man, you've got to change your diet or you're going to have a fucking heart attack before you're 40. And then they have a heart attack. And if they're lucky, they'll survive. If they're lucky, they'll change their lifestyle. If they're lucky, they'll live. But we have to wait for the heart attack. We have to wait for the rock bottom. We don't, we don't want to accept that our choices are taking us down this path. I've got mates who went to the same funerals as me. They're still doing the same shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've got mates that went with me to these prisons and, and visited blokes. Some blokes are never to be released. They went in there at the age of 22, 24. Imagine going to prison when you're 22 years old and the judge tells you you are never to be released. You have no prospect of parole ever. That's your life now. They won't even listen to them. It's bizarre. I don't know what they've injected these kids with, but fuck, they are so deluded and it's hard to, to show them how to how to live your life because no one wants to be told especially when your whole upbringing is to tell authority to fuck off and fuck you and we don't listen to police and we don't listen to people tell us what to do I don't know anything about prison except what I've seen on TV and the story is much like what you just told me alright but I can imagine that it can be a place where it will either concentrate something that's already going on to the point that when you get out, you just become this super version of what you were when you went in and just you're even more like, oh, right, I went in for, you know, five B&Es, but now I know how to do a bank job. Or on the other end of the spectrum is like, I went in for my five B&Es, now I pray five times a day and now I'm, I'm so not going anywhere back near that. Well, what it does is it incubates a culture of dispossessed people and it incubates that culture in such a fucked up way that these guys that I visit in prison know the answers are, but they'll re-offend. The stats are against them. Majority of them will re-offend. And what I try to tell the young guys from my community is that just... Look at who's in prison. The prisons aren't full of, of young white guys. They're full of, you know, Koori brothers. They're full of Muslims. They're full of Asians and New Zealanders and Islanders. Do you know what I mean? You don't, you just, but they, they're blind to it. Yeah. It's like um, if only we could chuck them in there for a few days and let them experience or, you know. But like I said, some of these guys I grew up with, they... They were at the same funerals, you know, at the same prisons, and they 
they still don't see it. So I don't know what it is. I don't know what's missing from from these huge cross-sections of society where they believe that, you know, life on the underside is the only path. Oh, when you're in a... I only know what it's like to be a white, you know, straight guy from the suburbs brought up by two white people, you know. I have no idea what it's like to be anything else. Yet, as I learned, unfortunately it was later in life, but as I learned to look at popular culture, media, imagery, music, news reports, when I started to look for bias, implicit bias, particular language that in order and it, like a, a classic moment it's like I was in New York on 9-11 I was there that day and the second plane hit I think at 8.35 by 9.06 or something because I was with my producer we were watching CNN by 9.06 they were playing the tape of the guys with the face masks launching themselves over walls in the ter- terrorist training camp and he said didn't even take them half an hour to start demonising the Arab my, my ex-producer, Ben, he's a fucking amazing guy. Yeah. He's, when I started working in television, he's, he's one of the guys that taught me all about that. He, he's like, you just fucking watch. You just yeah. watch. It was like we were watching the CNN. It was almost like someone walked into the back of the control and just handed this tape and went, go. That's what this is where on, we're going. That's what people on the media need to realise. When they make these off-handed comments about Muslims, um, they need to realise at who, whose expense they're making these comments. I mean, it's certainly not dictating policy. They're not influencing what Scott Morrison and the Cabinet think when they make these broad generalisations. But what they are doing is they're alienating a community that already feels pissed off and already feels like they don't fit in and they shouldn't exist in this society. And so they resolve into, you know, they're human, you know, They've got emotions, they've got feelings. And when you get told the same thing over and over again, you're going to react in a very, you know, instinctive and unfiltered way a lot of the time. I mean, I've got a lot of cousins who have done very well for themselves. I know a lot of Muslims, there's only a small minority of Muslims doing the shit that I was involved in. There are a lot of Muslims doing the right thing that have found the courage within to to um, overcome all this divisiveness. But a lot of the times, if you've come as a refugee from war or from poverty, um, it's very hard for you to think critically and analyse the way the social fabric is geared. It's just a sad reality. And a lot of, a lot of these guys don't know how to take it. They've been thrown into freedom. And, you know, that is a great thing, but some people don't know how to handle it when freedom comes with all these various uh, mitigating factors. The, the, the wisdom with which you speak, Mahmoud, is just I'm so grateful that you do what you do. Because Thank the, you, brother. The voice and the message that you have, I'm so grateful that you're doing it because it's something that needs to be more and more out there and you, you discussed, you know, policies and you see it. I remember when I first moved back, I moved back from America. I lived over there for about 10 years. When I moved back in 2015, um, there was only white people in commercials. 
right? And I was talking to my wife, we were watching TV last night and I was like, oh, look, there's, you know, you can hope for a mixed race couple, but, you know, there's never going to be two, you know, husband and wife, mm. but, you know, mixed race couple. And there's uh, like some big uh, campaign for a big department store at the moment and uh, there's one white person in it. Um, so more and more, you know, this is five, only not even four and a half years later, you know, this is this is shifting. Yet there's so many things that in our society you aren't allowed to be unless you're white. And so many people don't realise that. I'm, I'm talking on a panel um, next weekend about masculinity and they want to talk about toxic masculinity, which is a really important thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, let's, you know, talk about that the only kind of sexuality that is okay is white male heterosexuality. You know, my wife, we were up in Queensland, her parents live in Queensland, and there's, I don't know how much time you spent up there, there's a sex shop at every strip mall. It's, Queensland's like that. Yeah. It must have been the... Who would have thought Queensland was progressive? Yeah, right. But Audrey says only white guys are allowed to walk in and out. No. No, 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 but just like really? as a society, oh, yeah. we watch, you know, if we watch a Pakistani man walking in or out, people freak the fuck out. We watch an Islander man walking in and out, people freak the fuck out. Like that anyone but a white person, white man, you know, any kind of, I remember I was doing, I was having a chat with someone talking about this event. I'm like, well, you know, when we talk about, say for example, only only a white guy is allowed to be, I'm kind of horny, I want to go out and go on the pool tonight. Mm. Okay, where you go champ, hope to meet a nice girl, but you know, the nice Nepalese Uber driver I had this morning <laughs> on a Friday night, and I'm kind of horny, I want to go out. People, fuck them, what? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. You, you're not allowed to even, like, just your general, your human need for connection, for physical touch, for pleasure is, you know, unless it's a white one, yeah. we just never see it. Mm. And it's it's always with this subcult, subtext of there's something weird, something creepy yeah. about it. It was funny, like I talked to my older uncles about going out back in the day and um, Afghans were kind of exotic. So um, a lot of women found them quite attractive. And that wasn't the case when I was growing up, i tell you what. <laughs> man, we were not exotic <laughs> or, yeah, we didn't have any of those qualities. We were, we were the blokes on telly. Yeah, but, um, exactly. But on the flip side of that, I guess... Through my work, I've been thinking about all these ideas and trying to figure out a way to tell tell people from the communities that I was raised in that not everybody thinks the way these fucking commentators think. Like that's 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 something that needs to have light shed on it as well. You know, my dad works markets his whole life in Dandenong and in Victoria and Caribbean, and um, he's with middle class to lower socioeconomic classes every day. And he's, he, Australians love us, you know. We're, we're accepted by a lot of good, you know, good-hearted and honest Aussies. But it's, it's the way the, these commentators, certain commentators have these, you know, preconceptions of us that makes large cohorts of people feel alienated when really it doesn't actually exist in the society as much as we're led to believe, which is a, it's a point that maybe not everyone wants to talk about because it's, 
it's very easy to say, oh, no, what, you know, why they, why does they all fucking hate us? You know, it's us against them. But that's not the case, especially not the case, especially in the last few years of my life. I mean, I've had nothing but pleasant experiences in Australia. I've only had one, I mean, apart from high school where I had a lot of racist uh, incidents. Um, outside of school, I think it only ever happened once. And that was uh, the Cronulla weekend where there was a youth pulled up. And I was actually on my, the fucking irony of it, I was on my way to cricket training and I had my, my cricket, I had a wife later on and my thongs on going to train. And this car pulled up beside me as if, you know, I was involved in a fucking dispute on a beach in Cronulla. I don't even know what Cronulla was back then. I've never heard of that side of Sydney. We knew Bondi, that's about it. And we, we didn't even, yeah. And then, but aside from that one incident, I've had nothing but pleasant experiences, yet I was led to believe that society fucking hates me. Why is that? The idea that this has to change is fairly obvious. But what? What do you see as the pathway out of that? I think thinking about how to critically engage in these discussions on television without trying to just get a cracker headline or, like, um, you know, get those ratings up by saying something cheeky and controversial, it's always going to be there. But, again, it's at whose expense are you... Are you throwing out these ideas and and what are you achieving? If you're not achieving political, um, trying to make poli- difference in policy or something like that and you're not, you're not bridging that gap, that divide, then what the fuck are you saying it for then? Because you're just propelling this, this fear. Because mm. a lot of, a lot of, a lot of these people feel insecure, whether it's Indigenous peoples, whether it's, I don't know, L- LGBTQ issues, whether it's Muslim issues. These people are, we're all insecure. And uh, when you make, you know, these wild statements, I don't know, you've got to know whose expense you're making that, man. Just, just be good. <laughs> yeah. Don't see me. I was an outlaw bikey for years. I don't go around saying bad shit. I was doing bad things to bad people. Yeah. But, yeah, it's bizarre that good people do bad things for no reason, for no purpose. I feel there's a there's a great price that we're paying as a society for the generation of a clickable headline. There's a great price that we're paying for punchy three-minute clips of television that translate well to a YouTube or a Facebook thing. That's um, why I love this format, you know. We've talked for an hour and I feel we might be just barely starting to pull into focus a little about what kind of you know, if anything, you know, a little of the depth of what, you know, is going on. 
but that takes an hour. You yeah. Know? It's not 20 words on a Twitter post yeah. that can punch out and lead to a link and then and it decreasing our ability, these, you know, the way that our mass media is working at the moment, decreasing our ability to appreciate critical nuance and th critical thought in assessing something that's difficult to think mm. about. I just want to know how to feel about it. Do I feel angry or do I feel like, yes, that's it. I don't want to know anything else because I've got shit to do, you know. Yeah, but Lang, you can be honest with language and concise. I mean, that's like the beauty of poetry. But, you know, you can really illustrate or allude to an idea that is quite toxic we're in the same 200-word limit or whatever, 200-letter mm. limit. Um, but I don't buy that. People know what they're doing. You don't need... I don't, I don't believe you need a thesis uh, to tackle and engage with big ideas. You can do them in a Twitter status. But uh, you've got to be honest with yourself first, I think. And then... And you have to have done the research. That's... That's another thing that may that allows you and grants you that precision is having done loads and loads of research. And by loads, I mean just read the Quran if you've got a problem with Muslims. And then read a cross-section of commentators on it. I'm not saying read Wahhabi texts from Saudi Arabia. Read everything. Consume everything and then make your judgment. You might still hate it, you know. You might not, but, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to engage with ideas that you're not seduced by. I had, a lot, I, had a, I had a lot of trouble with that, you know, when I first, when I went to university because everyone just wants to confirm things they f feel intuitively are real. I only want to follow the Instagram and Twitter people that say the stuff that I already think, my wood. Yeah. That's all it is, man. Yeah. Why? But yeah, that's part of the reason why I got into journalism was because I was so I was so dirty with the way crime reporting was in Victoria, especially a lot of the reporting that was being done about my friends, and how much of it was just absolute bullshit. Like, I don't know who who their sources were. These are big papers and big publications. I don't know where they find these, you know, where these where they find these sources, quote unquote. But I can tell you, a lot of, a lot of it is absolute bullshit, and that's the problem with crime reporting because you've got to rely on, you know, dodgy sources. It's hard. It's hard to get the truth because a lot of a lot of people in that world like to talk shit. But the reason you've got to be more rigorous is that. When you publish something that's involved in crime, criminals consume the media. They live for the media. And so they will react off the media. And it can have extremely, extremely violent consequences because these are very paranoid people. And if you publish something that's a rumour about them, blokes get executed. It's not a joke. Uh, there's been multiple, multiple shootings that have happened as a result of dodgy reporting. 
and it needs to change. But how is it going to change? You can't have every crime reporter come out of a life of crime and then start writing journalism. It's very difficult terrain to navigate, but I think crime reporters need to really sharpen their pencils and fucking get more professional and interrogate your fucking sources because I'm telling you, you, you know, you have blood on your hands for real though. That's no joke. You will have blood on your hands. That's, that's heavy to hear. What did the path, what did your path out of the motorcycle gang and towards university look like? I'm sure it wasn't like, see you boys, off to uni. There must have been something like from that conversation that you mentioned, like it reminds me of, you know, like I can only imagine it's like, you know, the death knock that cops have to do when they have to go and tell a family, oh, your kid's dead in a car crash or something. Like it's, it's a very, very confronting, very difficult thing and you did it enough times that it would have been really quite horrible. What's the pathway from there? To- well, I, I you know, I, I wasn't very well at the time and uh, the boys there, they appreciated that. And I took some time off. And eventually they knew that my, my life had taken a different course. And mm-hmm. I'm, sure that, I'm sure they would have been, they would have felt maybe betrayed because that's how it feels. It's a family that you've voluntarily said that you don't want to be a part of anymore. Um, it's a very difficult thing to broach. But because I'd taken so much time off, they kind of knew and I'd, 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 I'd put in a lot of work. I'd always done the right thing by people. I'd never spoken to police. I, I was pretty bulletproof in everything I did and I'd done a lot for the club. So, yeah, when I left, um, and a lot of the blokes I knew had left too, all been kicked out and things like that. So the culture shifts rapidly. And, yeah, so I was... I was already on. I was already writing for Vice and and doing that stuff towards the end of my time mm. in Outlaw Motorcycle Club, and yeah, that was when we changed over to the we patched over to the Mongols. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it was all it was all very professional, mate. <laughs> yeah. What did your past to? I mean, you you're doing great. What did your past to getting better look like? Like better in my head? Yeah. Oh, man, that was difficult. Because paranoia, I've, that's a hard one to come back from. Man, I, was, I had paranoia. I had bipolar. And I had PTSD from a couple of shootings that had happened. So it was kind of between bipolar and PTSD. And in between that, I was very paranoid. Initially, I um, was on uh, a lot of Prozac. And I was self-medicating as well. I was taking a lot of Xanax. I started taking opiates. That stuff, it's not. It's like you're not even inside your own head. It just numbs you to the world. Um, uh, yeah. It, it's useful until it's not yeah, useful. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. useful until it's not useful. It's, 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 well, I don't know. When I, I was on two different kinds of antipsychotics for a while. And I was on, I was yeah, on, I was on Seracol. Yeah, I was on Seracol too, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, was, I was like... You know, I was like 94 kilos. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I think I was like 110, yeah. 115, yeah. Um, and it was it was really good because I was dealing with 
passive and active suicidal ideation and it was really quite horrible to wake up every day and then what that stuff was like oh thank fuck okay it's mm. just brought me some relief and then you know after a while the relief that it brought me became less significant than the side effects yeah and then i you know i just i was starting to get better you know i was yeah. starting to get better so and you just waned off them under a lot of supervision we changed regimes actually okay. i was really lucky i had a psychiatrist that questioned his initial hypothesis mm-hmm. it's like you know i think there might be something else going on here all right then so we had to come off all those i was on four different drugs we had to come off all of them then i had to wake in the middle where i was on nothing which was hard <laughs> and then oh, hey, he gave me some valiums i'm like i'm a fucking addict and i gave them to audrey i said Just don't tell me where they are just if I need them. Did you lose your sex drive? Oh, mate. That's the thing, you know. These things fuck with your testosterone so much. Mm. People don't want to talk about it. Like, I, I write it in my book. It's like, it's nice not to be crazy, but it was nice to be fat and frigid. I just mm. didn't care. Didn't, didn't care. care. I wasn't about sex. And I wasn't affectionate to anybody. No. Yeah, I, had, I was almost in that same emotionless state of mind as I was when I was on meth. Like, I was so detached from how you're supposed to be among other humans like yeah be compassionate yeah yeah it's it's super weird it was and you know that's that's one of the things that comes these drugs are really good for helping people who are who are in great need of help i agree and you know countless studies have showed that they work and that and that is one of the things that these drugs do Mm. You know, but at the time, I didn't care. I just wanted it to just, just please let it be quiet in my head. Please just let it, just fucking let it stop. Just please, shh, quiet. And then, oh, first time I took Zyprex, I was like, oh man, what the fuck? Why didn't I take this before? <laughs> it was so good. Yeah. But then after a while, you know, you know, just because um, I, you know, I was, I was lucky that my doctor challenged his initial was like maybe we'll get you on something different and then, so we did a week off and then I came up onto this other one so I went up onto this other one and, and it was in there that thing started to rewire and reshape and I was able to start thinking you know and mm. the neuroplasticity was able to work yeah right and I was up there for about a year and a half and then it took about we did about six months of coming off of that mm. and um, so I haven't been on anything but these like we're expecting a baby and oh, congratulations. Yeah, mate, it's great, my mood. But I talked to my psychiatrist about this. I'm like, man, I'm waking up two hours early again. And, I don't, I don't know. and he goes, yeah, this is pretty much to be expected. Like this is a real super common thing among people who are, you know, who have been into that space, all right, mentally, that when a peak, losing a job, getting a job, you know, moving, having a baby, these sorts of things, cool, kind of comes back a bit. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to see him next week. And I'm like, all right, let's talk. Like, I might need to get back on something then because it's a struggle. You know, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of hard. What's interesting about these things, it's not making the brain doing anything it can't do already. It's just stimulating it to the thing that you might not be able to think your way to. You know, mm. it doesn't all, like, you take MDMA, you, you can release serotonin. You know, your body knows how to release serotonin, but MDMA mm. just makes it do it in a you know much more intense way man i'm I'm bloody grateful that you found a pathway out of that because uh you know some people they're they're on those meds for life and that's just that's how it is man yeah you you can really sink i mean 
hits a point where you have extremely sinister thoughts and mm. I found myself doing all sorts of bizarre shit and then you snap out, you snap back to reality and think, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, why are you in this place? What Are you really going to go through with this? And and then your mum will ring you and say, what do you want for, are you coming home for dinner tonight and are you going to eat? And then you suddenly think, yeah, this weird narrative you've drummed up in your head suddenly gets brought back to earth by variables that were already there. <laughs> you just you just weren't paying attention. Yeah. Um, I have been, you know, I, I reached out to get you on this show when I started listening to your, your podcast, which uh, is extraordinary. And I find the format really engaging. It makes me think, I should really put some Foley sound effects on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, it's really good. It's really immersive. I really, I really enjoy it. And yeah, it really, we've got a really good team. Yeah. yeah the it, producer Callum's, yeah, remarkable. But the source material is, come on, man. The source material has got to be there. And yeah. the the way, there's no way I could ever interview the people you interview and get them to say the things they say. It is purely because you are how you are. Your energy is how your energy is. You visually are, you know, how you are. To walk into a Yakuza den <laughs> Wednesday afternoon and negotiate an interview. <laughs> oh, my God, man. Yeah. Yeah, that was wild. Holy moly. Like, that was extraordinary, like, to yeah. What made you want to explore the particular role that violence has in our society? In Why? Yeah, well, I was... Like I told you, I, I suffered the worst possible outcome of violence. And I just wanted to p- portray and explore it to make sense of the things that happened in my own life and how normal people, I consider myself a normal person, can resolve to to really outlandish fucking things and really impose quite gross types of violence, whether it's verbal violence, whether it's kicking down someone's door, physical violence. I just want, I just wanted to make sense of it, but the more people I speak to, the more complicated it gets. Um, you know, the way people are trained to make sense of violence in terms of our defence force, how they rationalise violence, where the moral lines are, where the moral crossroads are for violence, who's allowed to inflict violence Mm. and who's not, who are we allowed to inflict violence on and why. I was thinking about a lot of things like that and, yeah, I mean, I was always obsessed with violence from a very young age. I loved watching uh, Van Damme movies and Steven Seagal movies, and I loved action heroes, and I wanted to be a soldier when I was very young. I wrote it in, like, a primary school thing that I wanted to be a soldier, but the the war was waged on us, so I took a backseat on that. But I think um, I found there was something, I wouldn't say beautiful about violence, but there was something about it that was so... 
human, like so natural, so um, instinctive. And when when you're immersed in violence, whether you're in, a, in the violence of a street fight, systemic violence in a prison system, violence in a ring where it becomes sport, the way we negotiate it is can be thrilling, can be horrific, but it's always prevalent and always has been prevalent and it's shaped the course of history um, and the way we are. So all those weird um, pretentious ideas really interest me. It's hardly pretentious. You, it's hardly pretentious. It is a very confronting show to listen to. I was really confronted by the the stats on the prison population and that Australian Indigenous people are the the most incarcerated people on earth. That particular episode was very, very difficult. Mm, Yeah, Vicky Roach is amazing. Very difficult to listen to. Very empowering to speak to a woman like that. I've had a a couple of guys on this show similar to the military man that you had on. I've had a couple of guys who are ex-soldiers or ex-snipers or had an ex-child soldier, you know, And I know, I've had people in my home where I sleep at night sit at this table across from you where I eat dinner with my family and I look at them and I'm like, you've killed people. Mm. You've watched a man die at your bare hands and here we are having a cup of tea. What do you think, like, (laughs) how can people live do you feel like you've, you've obviously interviewed a lot of people and spoken with a lot of people in, you know, in your, your life experience? There's got to be a difference between people that can go, oh, yeah, that's the thing I did, and people who are just haunted and wake up every night and then, you know, can't, every time they see a red camera or something, they just... Yeah, man, the truth is I don't know. Everybody is wired differently and... What leads to an act of violence is just as important as the act itself and how that unfolds in their minds or how they piece it together, make sense of it in their minds afterwards. It it all varies on so many different factors like who the person is. Some people just, I mean, I've met people in maximum security prisons who would just kill us. they could kill people, you know, and they, some of them don't really think twice about it, you know, or they're very, very, very good at hiding it. Um, there's other people that are tormented by it. Um, there's other people that try to heal the world through this experience of violence. There's, but I think. In the long run, it's this weird thing that humans have always done and we still don't quite know what it is and why we do it. And um, because the world can't really operate without it because it's the nature of who we are. There was a very powerful thing when you had that, I can't remember the name of the soldier, what was his name? Uh, Paul Cale. Okay. When he said, if you want to, and you're in your own experience of your story you told me today, if you want to talk to a bully, you have to speak their language. Exactly. And when he said that, I was like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
not a good way to think. Says, do you th- you know, when he said, do you think you'll stop me from talking nice to me? Fuck, actually, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, that was really powerful, but it did get me kind of thinking a bit about how we think about punishment of people who have perpetrated acts of violence. And there's another thing that he said was like, how do I stop the bad person without becoming a bad person myself? We were having discussion at our dinner table the other night about um, Cardinal Pell mm. and his punishment. And I'm sure there's people that would love oh, just temporary ban on public flogging. You know, mm. I'm not saying that we should on this, but I'm sure that there are some crimes in our society where we just want to just absolutely flay and destroy and eviscerate and, and dismember and like as if we think it'll make us feel better. Mm. But it's it's not going to, is it? Yeah. You know, and, I, and I was like, we, we can, we're kind of stuck and you have like countries like the US that execute people and the state does it, so it's okay. Texas, for example, man, they love it over well, there. Well, these, these are ideas everyone feels sympathy for. Um, everyone feels sympathy for, you know, an idea like that, like where someone abuses young kids or kidnaps kids you know, you would like to see them drawn and corded the old-fashioned way. But that is largely dependent on... It's largely dependent on your proximity to violence. If you've experienced close-quarter violence and really watched someone get hurt and seen what they're like afterwards and beforehand, you really wouldn't wish that on... If, if, you're, if you're a moral person and a civilized person you wouldn't wish that on anyone but then again arguments have been made that the prison system is just as torturous and tormenting um michel foucault writes about it being an act that torments the soul because the the prisoners constantly being watched and observed and disciplined and and that has this kind of long-term effect on on person but yeah, I I think I think those ideas are really seductive until you watch real violence happen to people and you watch them you know, you watch them moan and groan when they've, you know, been savagely beaten or been concussed and hit in the face or you see someone get stabbed and the way the blood pours out and the blood looks weird and suddenly you're in a room full of blood and it stinks. Yeah, everyone thinks bad people should be punished, but it's largely depending on their proximity to how they've seen punishment unfold, I think. It's an answer I don't have, Mahmoud. Mm. But... When I think about really public examples of violent justice being meted out, um, is that is that Gaddafi on your arm? Yeah. Okay, so you got a tattoo of Gaddafi on your arm. Yeah, yeah. Him and Hussein, their executions were filmed on mobile phones. All right. Yeah. And I've seen the footage. Hussein's right. were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they found was equally. Yeah. yeah, when they found Gaddafi hiding under a. Yeah. You know, and that, that this is this. How did you feel when you saw that? When you saw him be dragged and sodomized by a gold plated nine millimeter? I felt really 
it just felt so futile. It felt so, so futile. Like, this isn't going to change anything. This doesn't make anything right. Well, how has history portrayed it? Look at Libya now. It's rubble. It's Al-Qaeda fighting ISIS, fighting the next radical Islamic movement that are way worse than what he was doing. And Iraq is rubble. So it, it, it is, you know, should we have taken them to an international court and tried them? I don't know. I don't have the answer, but I'm not really schooled in in global politics in that way. But I, 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 just, I just know that watching that footage, I mean, they, Saddam Hussein was hung and in such a crude and medieval way on Eid, a day where Muslims celebrate. They flick on the TV and watch watch a man get hung. I mean, for a lot of Shia Muslims, that was a day of celebration. But, I mean, if you're trying to impose the West's civilised status on the Middle East, the very backwards Middle East that you claim, that's, I don't see how that's going to change anything. Yeah, and again, it's to see someone like Gaddafi who few years earlier gave speeches at the UN to be sodomised by a gun and we all just kind of let that happen and let it slide and you can watch it on YouTube. It, that idea, it's, it seems uncivilised to me, it seems wrong. And for powers to let it happen, I don't know. That you're exploring these parts of our society that are uncomfortable for most people to talk about. You know, we want to flick on the TV at 7.30 at night watch a show, mm. go to bed at 9.30, hopefully get bed, go to sleep before 10, you know, try and get eight hours in, you know, because um, we live in this extraordinarily lucky, incredible country. Mm. We're so fucking lucky to live here. I agree. But it's important to have these conversations, my mom, because it's important to know, because, I mean, ultimately, you know, when you, because we're trying to, we're having this conversation about, for example, George Pell, is like if we, if we were to do that, do we then just become as bad? You make a martyr of the man yeah. Yeah. who deserves to, you know... Not be that. Not be that and be penalised and face the same consequences everybody, every other criminal faces mm. and have justice meted out to him in the same way it's meted out to all of us. Mm. So I, I guess there is, you know, our country outlawed executions not long ago actually it's people alive right now that were still alive when they were still hanging people mm. here in Australia I'd like to think that over history if you look at yes there's been violence at every single stage of it but over history we kind of figured out somewhere in around the enlightenment time maybe maybe it's better if we talk maybe it's better if we don't chop each other to bits mm. and then the, but we still give people life without parole People under the age of 25, life without parole. Some of those blokes wish they were dead. They're, they're stuck in a 4 by 4 and, yeah, suffering for the rest of their natural life in yeah. that environment. I don't have the answers. 
but I'm glad that someone like you is asking the questions, man. Cheers, brother. <laughs> I'm so stoked you came around. Audrey said, because I've got to go to this thing at the ABC. She's like, you'll talk to him for two hours. I'm like, fuck, you're right, honey. <laughs> I could have done another hour with you, man. I hope we get to do this again. Yeah. Um, I really hope we get to do this again. I think what you're doing, the work you're doing, where you stand when you're asking these questions, I think has, I can't think of someone that has been you in our media scape since I've been aware. All right. Yeah. So, thank you for having me, man. Well, I think it's really important that you are who you are, you've done what you've done, where you are working is also very important because it allows you to operate. You're working at Vice, you know, mm. you, it allows you to operate with this kind of gung ho attitude. Yeah. You can you can ask questions, you can raise opinions, you can pose quandaries out to the world that you might not be able to do if you're at a different outlet. Uh, I think it's really important. Thanks, man. Anytime, brother. <laughs>that was Mahmoud Fazal. You can listen to his podcast, Violent Times, wherever podcasts are. You can read his work online with Vice as well at vice.com. Just search his name, Mahmoud Fazal, there. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make the episode today. Thank you to Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Mike Mills, who made all the music, and you for listening. Please leave a review. Leave what you thought of this episode up on iTunes. That'll be cracking. And... Um, I'll talk to you Friday. Yeah, I'll talk to you Friday. Unreal. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The secret to visibly firmer summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number 1 best-selling Andaria algae body oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.